Yeah, so the next section of our bulletin here, you see covenant vows. Um, and this is a, a little different than when we bring people into membership, uh, partly it's because of the uh, disruption of the pandemic. So, so Jeff uh, came into membership during the pandemic, and as part of that, he assented to these membership vows when he did his, the membership interview where he shared his, his testimony of coming to know the Lord. And, uh, and then same for Jonathan, transferring from his church in Florida to be a member of Hope uh, during the pandemic. But we hadn't actually done the, the membership vows the church. And, and it's a normal practice to, to affirm the membership vows when you do the, the membership interview with the provisional session, but they also do it in front of the church. And the reason for that, I mean, so it's been a, over a year, I think, since they, they came into membership, and we could have done it sooner, and that's on me. <laughs> um, but it is important to do. Um, and and, and the, the reason is, it's similar to when you, when you, if you go to a wedding, you hear, hear marriage vows. It's a reminder of the commitment that you yourself have made if you're married. Uh, and if you have come into church membership, that it is a, a covenant where you're, you're covenanting, you're making vows um, in the presence of others before God. Uh, and it's binding you know, to yourself to the Lord and, and faith and acknowledging yourself to be a sinner and, and your, your faith in Christ. But then also committing yourself to, to a local church. Uh, the number four, the, do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability, to submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church? And, and those are our weighty vows that uh, so often, I think, especially in America, we have a, a consumer mindset of, of church where it's, it's more of, I'm going to go to this business that provides a service and if I don't like the service that's being provided, I move on to another church that provides a service that I desire. Um, but that's a different than, than a covenant commitment. So I invite um, Jeff and Jonathan to come up. You guys can, can stand over here. Um, and I'm, you can just stand in front of that stand there and kind of face the, uh, there you go. That works. Um, you can stand a little closer. Unless it's COVID fear. There we go. Uh, <laughs> um, so so I'll, I'll read these, and, and if you agree to them, you can send to them. If you disagree, we'll talk. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, so do you acknowledge yourself to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? And do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the follower of Christ? And do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability. Yeah, you do. And do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? Yeah, All right, guys, thank you. And you can, you can have a seat, and I'll pray. And, uh, you can just go and have a seat, and I'll, and I'll pray. Um, and, and just give, give thanks for, for Jeff, for Jonathan, um, and... and and just pray for all of us in our commitment to the, to the local church and just the value of that commitment that 
that has that, that commitment that we long to even see in a marriage covenant as well, that, 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 uh, that condition that is, is deeper than, than so often we, we find in our culture. So let's, let's pray. Um, Father in heaven, we, we thank you for Jeff. We thank you for Autumn. Uh, we thank you for Jonathan. Um, for all those who have come into to membership, not only in this uh, little church, but also in your body throughout the world. Lord, we, we pray that you would forgive us so often for having just a, a consumer mindset, Lord, with that. Uh, we, we pray that you would forgive us as the church in America, and probably especially in the West, uh, for so often not taking seriously the vows that we make, uh, just vows in general, whether it, it is in, in marriage or covenant vows to a, a local church. Uh, Lord, we thank you that, that we can acknowledge you as our, as our Savior, that you are the one who died, who rose again. And we all do acknowledge ourselves to be sinners before you. Uh, but Lord, we thank you for the church. Lord, we thank you for the, the purity and the peace of the church. We pray that we can all work towards that goal, all strive to, to see the church um, presented before you, Lord. Uh, we thank you that, that we are the, the bride of Christ together, that, that you have put all things under Christ and you've given Christ as head over all things to the church, which is your body, the fullness that fills all in all. And Lord, we thank you for that that fullness in Christ that has been given to the church. And Lord, we, as we think about the, the world right now, uh, there is a, a lot going on, as there always is in the world, but we especially think of the what's going on in Afghanistan currently. Lord, we grieve with the, the images, the, the stories, uh, the, the fear, uh, the violence that has broken out in that country. And so, Lord, right now, we pray for those that are, that are in fear for their lives, uh, from the Taliban, uh, for the translators, those who have worked with Americans, for their families. Lord, we pray for those who are American citizens who are still trapped in Afghanistan. Lord, we pray for the, the women in that country who have had some semblance of freedom for education, um, Lord, that, uh, that it seems like they're in, in danger of having those um, rights taken away. Uh, and Lord, we, we see that uh, a religion um, and an expression of that religion, the Taliban, that is antithetical to the, to the gospel, to the scriptures, Lord, we, we grieve over that. Uh, but Lord, we also pray for the, the Christians that are in Afghanistan as well. We know that you have believers there uh, and many of whom are, are currently in great danger. I've heard uh, reports of people being dragged out of their homes and beaten or imprisoned for those of their faith, Lord. Uh, we, we pray that they would be bold in their witness. Uh, and, and what we pray, Lord, is uh, for a revival of the gospel in that land, where we pray for even those who are perpetrating violence for those in the Taliban, that, that they could have the Saul to Paul story that going from those who are persecutors of the church, raging against the church, to those who encounter Christ and, and bow the knee and, and repent and turn to him. And Lord, we pray that that would be the, 
the ultimate story. But Lord, in this, in this dark moment, we just pray you'd be with all who are suffering, all who are in danger. Lord, we pray that you would protect our, our troops um, who are still there. Uh, we pray that you could bring order to the chaos. We pray for uh, the, the, those who have served in Afghanistan who are uh, looking at what is happening and reflecting on their own sacrifice and their own loss. And, and, I, and I pray that they also could, could find their, their sense of purpose and hope in you, um, not in the outcomes of, of events on the international stage, Lord, that, that this could be an opportunity to turn to you, to, to confess with the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes that it's vanity of vanity, all is vanities in this world under the sun, Lord. And whenever we try to find meaning here under the sun, that, that we discover that, that it comes up short so that we could find our meaning, our, our purpose in Christ alone. And Lord, we also pray for those in Haiti who have, are still reeling from the earthquake there. Uh, we, we grieve to see a country that has experienced so many tragedies, where there's so much poverty, so much uh, despair, so much suffering. And in light of this earthquake, the, the homelessness, the, um, and especially even in light of the assassination that took place there not that long ago, Lord, we, we pray that you would support the, the believers that are there, uh, the, the privilege in the Dominican Republic of meeting some of the, the church planners who are working in the country of Haiti, uh, that there, there is amazing work there going on for the gospel of churches being planted, people coming to faith and openness to the gospel. Um, and so, Father, we pray for the believers there that they can um, minister to the, to the physical needs, the, the hunger as best they can, pray for the missionaries that go into the country. Uh, but we also pray for that, that deeper level of, of hope in the midst of suffering that we find in Christ. And so, Father, we, we pray all of this in the name of your son. And we pray as he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So please grab your, your Bible and turn with me to the book of Hosea. And we're looking at Hosea chapter 13. If you're, if you're using the, the Pew Bible that is, that is near you, uh, this is on page 758 in your own Bible. And you can always use the index at the beginning of the Bible to, to find Hosea because it is a short book. Hosea. Uh, this ancient prophet ministering almost 700 years before the, the birth of, of Christ. And we're, we're drawing near the end of this book. And so we're, today, obviously, chapter 13, we're going to look at the whole chapter. Um, and then Jonathan actually will be preaching next week, um, and not a passage in Hosea. And then the next week, Lord willing, we will... Uh, finish up the book of Hosea, and then be moving into First Timothy, an epistle in the in the New Testament. But th this section coming, we've been in this long section of of judgment in the prophet Hosea, and that that this is the 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 climax of the the judgment section. 
But as we'll see when we, when we wrap up in chapter 14, that the climax of the book is not judgment, that it's God saying, I will heal them, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. That's the ultimate conclusion of this book. But here we still find ourselves with this, the, the darkness of confronting human sin, but also that these glimmers of hope that come through even in this chapter. So again, this is Hosea chapter 13. I'll begin reading in verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes up, goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full, they were uh, filled and their heart was lifted up, therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and a prince? I give you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O oh, death, where are your plagues? O oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord, shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up, his springs shall be parched, it shall, be, it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt.
because she has rebelled against her God. And they shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and her pregnant and their pregnant women ripped open. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we we know that the scripture, all of it is breathed out by you, that it is all profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training, for instruction in righteousness, that we might be equipped for every good work. But Lord, some sections of scripture are are easier, are, are easier to understand, easier to initially seeming easier to apply to us. But Lord, we, we pray that as we, we look at this text today, um, that, that we would sit under it, that we would not sit as judges over your word, but we would sit as servants under your word uh, to receive what you say to us. And so we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the reality of death is, is there for us. We, we don't like to think about death, but if we're honest, if we really think about those who have come before, that, that, that death is something that, that we can't escape by our own strength. And that, that's something that we talk about here at Hope quite often because the scripture talks about death. It confronts us with that reality in a, in a world that has rebelled against God. And so you could say, well, you face death in the news, you'll face death of friends or loved ones, you'll face your own death one day. And so we need to ask a question that is a very important question. Who or what can save us from death? Can anything save us from death? And if you are someone who considers yourself an atheist, if you're someone who doesn't believe in God or doesn't believe in the supernatural, you might answer that question and say, no one can save us from death. That's the end. When you die, you cease to exist. You came from nothing, you returned to nothing, and, and there's only that little space of, of meaning and purpose in your life while you're here. But others of you could fall into the category of an agnostic. Maybe you wouldn't use that word, but, uh, but it means someone who, who doesn't know. You would say, I don't know what happens after I die. I don't know if God exists. I don't know. No one can know. No one knows what happens. So, so really all you can do is hope for the best. And the question, who can save us from death, is a, is a meaningless question because you don't think anyone has the information to answer that question. But what about the Bible? What does the Bible say about that question? We ask, who can save us from death? And in Scripture, we see the answer. And, and so today, we're going, to, we're going to look at the whole chapter, but we're going to look at it through the lens of verse 4. Because verse 4 presents these two great truths about God. And they're two great truths that help us answer the question, who can save us from death? And so here's the, the first great truth in verse 4 about God. God is a Savior. And that may seem even obvious to some of you. 
of course God is a savior, but it's really not obvious. And, it, and part of the reason is that we were reminded of it over and over again in scripture, that we need the constant reminder that is who God is. Because look at verse four, God says, but I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. And there you see him identifying himself as the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which in most English translations is a shorthand for Yahweh, the covenant name of God. He's Yahweh, your God from the land of Egypt. And that is one of the, fam- uh, the most famous, favorite ways that God loves to identify himself in the Old Testament as the God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And as often as the case in Hosea, what we have here is this, this allusion back to an earlier passage in the Old Testament uh, that, that Hosea is preaching the Bible again, the Bible that he had in his possession because all of Scripture had not been written at his time yet. And he, he's referencing the Ten Commandments. When Moses received the, the law on Mount Sinai, and you remember, how did God begin the preface to the Ten Commandments? He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And then continuing through the Ten Commandments. So when God is going to present, here are commands, but I don't want you to misunderstand to think that that you are the ones following the commands to earn redemption, that the starting place for the commands is the God who saves, that God is a savior. And that is what frames our understanding of the commandments of God, the character of God as our Savior. And this is repeated elsewhere in Leviticus 26, 13. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Or Psalm 81, verse 10 I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And so God is a God who saves, who who rescues. And that was seen ultimately um, not in him just bringing out Egypt, or sorry, bringing Israel out of Egypt. Um, That was a big signpost that was presenting the character of God, but pointing to something greater something yet to come, this, this ultimate victory over the ulti- ultimate enemy of death that was accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so that, that's significant for us, that as New Testament believers, of course, we look at the, the redemption from Egypt, but that's not the story that we celebrate and is this, the central part of our life together as the church. And in fact, this was predicted in the Old Testament. In in Jeremiah 16, it says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And so that's looking to a day when that's not going to be the primary redemptive story that's going to frame your understanding of God. It will frame your understanding of God but there's a greater redemption, first return from Babylon, but ultimately the great redemption that was accomplished in Christ. That's why we don't celebrate Passover, which was about coming up out of the land of Egypt, but we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the, 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 the lamb of the Passover that was sacrificed for us. 
That's why we celebrate on the Lord's Day, on Sunday for our worship, not on Saturday, because in Deuteronomy, it says that this, the seventh day Sabbath was the day that they came out of Egypt. It was the day also that God created the world. But as believers, we celebrate the new creation in Christ. We celebrate the, the new redemption, the new exodus. But all of it is pointing to this fact that God is a God who saves. God is a savior. That's the first great truth in verse 4. But here's another great truth in verse 4. That God is not just a Savior, but He is the only Savior. And this is where we'll, we'll spend longer on this truth, because this develops the first, that He's the only Savior. Because look at the second part of verse 4. He says, you know no God besides me. And that's, again, intentional, the way that He's drawing on the Ten Commandments, where the Ten Commandments said, as a command, you shall have no other gods before me. But here he's saying, you shall know no other gods before me. And that's intentional because it's drawing out the, the change of saying no. That, that sense of, especially in, the, in, in Hebrew, the, of knowing is this very intimate connection with another person. That, that, that you shall have this intimate connection with no other god, which is the great theme of Hosea, is God is the, the husband of Israel, and they're called to be faithful to him in covenant. But he says, you, you, you know no other God besides me, and besides me, there is no Savior. There's no other option. There's nothing else on the menu that, that God is the only Savior. That's where Isaiah, ministering at the same time as Hosea, writes in Isaiah 43, verse 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Or Isaiah 45, verse 22, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior, and there is none besides me. Or uh, a phrase that is quoted both in Psalm 3 and in Jonah 2, it says that salvation belongs to the Lord. It belongs to him because he's the only Savior. There's, there's no other Savior besides the God of the Bible. And so the fact that there is none besides him, and it, it's obvious logic, I suppose, but that eliminates everything else. But sometimes we don't act like that's the case. That is money a Savior? Well, we, we sometimes think that it is, but not an ultimate Savior from death. Just look at the Egyptian tombs and the money that they had to build those tombs, but it couldn't rescue them from death. You say, well, is success the answer? Is success a savior to be remembered? And you look at the great statues of men and women that have passed on, and you see that it didn't rescue them from death. Maybe they're remembered, but what good is that to them now? Is education a savior? Well, some think that Education is what saves us, and education is important. But think of Germany at the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century, the best education in the world at that point in Germany. And where did it lead them? Into two world wars, into perpetrating the Holocaust, into all the violence and death, that it didn't save them, the education that they had. Is the government a savior? And sometimes we think that government is the savior, but 
You look at the atrocities that have been committed by governments. You look at the ways that governments fail, the way that governments let people down. We're thankful for a civil government, but in an ultimate sense, government can't save us. Or are you a savior? And sometimes I think that's where we, we turn, that we think of ourselves as the savior. Can, can we save others? And, and sometimes we think it's our responsibility to save others. And, and we'll, in our evangelism seminar, we will talk about the, the importance of us sharing our faith with others. But God is the only one who can save. He's the only one who can change the heart. There is no savior besides him. Sometimes we think that we can save ourselves, that we can do enough good works, that we can do, give enough money to the church, we can do enough ceremonies, we can somehow pull ourselves together to be good enough, but, but that's not right. We can't do it. We can't rescue ourselves from death. You, you try to say, well, I don't smoke, I eat well, I exercise, that's good, but even that won't save you from death in the end. Eventually, it will catch up that we... There is no savior besides the God of the Bible. And so we can say the God of the Bible, he's the only savior. And we said that, that all of these other things aren't saviors. But we could also say that, that, that all the, the other potential gods that we could worship are not saviors. That the, the only God, the only savior of the scriptures is not the, the visible God of paganism. And that's what you see actually in verse 1 to 3 in this chapter, uh, that he's not the visible savior of paganism. Because the paganism of his time and even of our time sees God as, as visible. You have a representation of a human form or an animal form, and you, you bow down and you worship before that. And, and even today, we can often think of God as a visible form in that way, but that's not the God, that's not the Savior of the Bible. Hosea 13, verse 2 says, And now they sin more and more, and they make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. And so this is the 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 idols that they're they're making, and and it and this is not how God wants them to worship. But in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12, it says that the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And that's what grounds that idea in the Old Testament, but carries to the New Testament as well, that, that you can't make an image of God because that image would not show the the nature of God is a spirit, is eternal, is unchangeable, and is being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, that, that the image can't contain him. And that's why it says in, in John 4, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The, the second commandment um, is that you shall not make a carved image. And that you say, well, that is not just repeating the first commandment to have no other gods, but it's saying you should worship Yahweh as the only God. And the way that you should worship him is not through images, not through depicted forms. And that's something that, that is even true for, for the way that we worship, where, where we're, we worship through the word of God, the voice of God. But we don't worship through a statue or an image, uh, but we worship through the, the scripture. 
as the, the truth of God. So that's the Savior, is the, the, the Savior speaking through the Scriptures, not this, the, the Savior of the, the images, not the, the visible God of paganism. But again, this, this only God, so he's not the, the visible God of paganism, but we could also say that he is not the, the tame God of Protestant liberalism. I think I've picked on Protestant liberalism quite a bit recently, <laughs> preaching, but that's okay. Uh, but, but Protestant liberalism, again, from Germany in the 1800s is where it really took off. Uh, these, these people who were too smart for their own good uh, and, and determined that they could be the ones who stand over the Bible and that the Bible is, is not supernatural. And the, and the view of God is not the God of the, of the Bible, who's a God of love and justice and holiness and the God who, of, of wrath, holy, righteous wrath, who, who provides the, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But it's this, this tame God who wants us to be good people like the teachers are supposedly good people, that you follow the example of Jesus, that it is, it is a tame view of God. But if, as you... As you look at the Bible, that the, the view of the Savior is not a, a tame Savior. And, and that's what you see in verse 5 to 8. In, and you see this, this picture of this Savior. He says, I am the only Savior. That if you're looking for a Savior, I'm the only option. But what kind of a Savior is the God of the Bible? Well, look at verse 7. He says to Israel, I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. Isn't that shocking, completely shocking, that God himself, the God of the Bible, the one who is the Savior who brought them out of the land of Egypt, would describe himself as a wild animal devouring a beast. That is the picture of the judgment that he's going to bring upon his people. That it, it's not the, the tame God. It's what we said a few weeks ago about Aslan in the Narnia, Chronicles of Narnia, where it says he's not a tame lion. That this is not a tame lion. That he is, he is loving, he is good, he is supremely good, he's, but he's also just. He's beyond our, our ways. Um, that if we're going to, to fashion our view of God, it's, it should be according to the Bible. It shouldn't be just who we want God to be. And this is the God that God himself presents in his word. So again, this isn't the, the tame savior of Protestant liberalism. But then we could also say that, that he isn't the unconcerned savior, the unconcerned God of deism. And you couldn't even really call that God a savior, that, that deism is the idea that God just kind of winds up the world, lets it go. But it's what we fall into practically quite often in our lives, where, where we think that, that God is unconcerned, he's unengaged in the details of our life. And if, you, if you've tracked through the book of Hosea, that's the one thing you can't take away from the book of Hosea. Uh, if there's one thing that you can take away is that God cares deeply. And that is why the, the judgment, the discipline for his people flows out. In verse 9, he's, he's their helper. In verse 10 of this chapter, he is their king standing against the, the false kings. And in verse 16, 
He's the one who, who brings this, this shocking judgment that, that is so difficult to even read or to describe or to, to think about. This is the, the Savior, the only Savior. But you can, you can think about that in your own life, that, that sometimes you're tempted to think God doesn't know, God doesn't care, God's not engaged. God cares. He knows. He is engaged with your life. And if you're in Christ, that is a comforting thing. But if you're not, it can actually be a terrifying thing as well because he's not the tame God, as we said. So this, this Savior then, the only Savior of the Bible, he's not the visible God of paganism. He's not the, the tame God of Protestant liberalism. He's not the, the unconcerned God of deism. And you say, what kind of a Savior is he then? What kind of a God is this? And that's what we see, this, this glimmer of light in this dark chapter in verse 14. So look there in your Bible. Verse 14, God asks a question. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? And that's the, 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 the land of the deep, uh, often even translated hell. Shall I ransom them from the power of hell? Shall I redeem them from death? Will I save them from death? Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. And so God asked the, the question, will I, will I save them from death? The question that we asked at the beginning of our time together today. And then in answer, God taunts death. He says, oh, death, where are your plagues? Where are they? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? And so you think that this is moving towards a, a culmination of hope, but then all of a sudden it says, compassion is hidden from my eyes. And if you, if you paid attention as I was reading this whole chapter, it kept switching back and forth between the prophet talking about God and God speaking, but it was always unclear. If you go back and you'll read it, you'll see that he, he just shifts back and forth between who is speaking, because it's all the word of God. And so who's speaking there? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Is that God speaking? Compassion is hidden from my eyes? I think that it's actually the, the prophet speaking again as well, that God saying that I will ransom them from death, taunting death, but then the prophet saying, but can, this compassion is hidden from my eyes, that that the judgment that's going to be described at the end of this chapter, that's what's before his eyes. That's what he sees, not victory over death, not victory over judgment, not victory over hell, but he sees this, this impending judgment that he doesn't have the view yet of the, of the work of, of Christ, of the, the victory over death. Yes, he's seeing victory as they were brought out of Egypt, but yet that's not from death. This ultimate victory, it's still hidden from his eyes. But I love actually how several other translations render verse 14, because there's some ambiguity in the Hebrew. Uh, the CSB translates more down this line, but listen to the, to the King James Version. It, this is God speaking he, in verse 14. He says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. So there they're not questions, but they're, they're statements. You can take it that way. And then he says, O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy 
destruction. And so that's another way that you could, you could read it, is God himself saying that I'm going to be the plague of death, to destroy death, that I will be the, 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 the destruction of the grave. And that's, as you think about the hope in that, as you turn to the New Testament, and I would encourage you to, to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15, or you can look in your bulletin at the New Testament reading that Roseanne read for us. And here is that this amazing chapter in the New Testament where Paul is talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, victory over death. And he says that if Jesus is not risen, we are above all people most to be pitied. And then in verse 54, he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and then he quotes Hosea chapter 13, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But then he changes he stops there. He doesn't say that compassion is hidden from my eyes. Because from his perspective, in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, compassion is no longer hidden from his eyes. And so, so death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, oh, death, where is your victory? Verse 56, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so who can save us from death ultimately? Will God save us from death ultimately? Well, we know that God is a savior. He has proved that by bringing Israel out of the land of Egypt. We know that he is the only savior ultimately. There is no other savior, that salvation belongs to him and to him alone. But you see the judgment of God. You see, you see the God who describes himself as the, the wild beast tearing apart the prey. And you consider the love and the mercy of God. How do those come together? That they come together in Christ on the cross. As Christ is the one who is devoured. The wild, by the, the wild beast, you could say, of the, the crowd that surrounded him. Taking the wrath of God in our place. Bearing that, that judgment so that he could conquer death, that Jesus could be the one who says, I will redeem them from death. Oh, death, I will be thy plagues, that Jesus was the plague of death on the cross. Oh, grave, I will be thy destruction. And by dying, he did destroy death. And so he is the only savior in Christ, which is why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me, that, that he is the way of life. And he's the way that is symbolized here in this meal for us. Because we said that, that we no longer speak of God as, or we do speak of him as the one who brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. But that's not our primary story anymore. That we're not celebrating Passover, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. We're celebrating the Savior who rescued us, who, who ransomed us, uh, the one who brought us out of, out of sin, out of death, and that we have this ultimate confidence, this ultimate hope in Jesus because of what he has done for us. Now, if you're here and you, you don't know that ultimate hope, if you have not repented and trusted in Jesus, 
then I would encourage you to, to stay seated as people come forward. Um, and uh, for the rest, though, you, you don't have to be a member of, of Hope. You don't have to be a member of a Presbyterian church. But one who has repented is trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, has made that public by being part of a church that, that preaches the gospel. Um, and then to, to be one who can profess the faith that we hold together using the words of the Apostles' Creed. And so this is on page 8. So please read this with me, the faith that we hold. That I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Because on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way, after supper, he took the cup. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So come forward when you're ready. Take either the gluten-free or the regular here. Return to your chair and we'll take it together. Let's pray. Father, will you rescue us from death? We know that you already have in Christ that, that you are a Savior. You are the only Savior. You are our Savior in Christ. So, Lord, I, I pray for any who are here or who are watching this online who don't yet know you as Savior, who don't yet know the, the rescue that you have made, that they wouldn't try to save themselves, that they wouldn't look to alternative saviors that can't actually deliver. Uh, but I pray, Father, that we can look to you as the only Savior. And Lord, that is such good news for us because Jesus is the one who died and rose from the dead, that, that he is the one who conquered death. He is the one that became the plague to death itself, that destroyed death by dying and rose again. And so, Lord, we pray that we can hitch our wagon to Christ, that we can grab onto him as our life preserver, that we can uh, be plugged into the battery of Christ, that we can feed on him by faith, that we can know him, that we wouldn't be the, the chaff that blows away, we wouldn't be the smoke going out the window, but that we would be firm in Christ, confident. And Lord, we even as we, we pray to you now, we recognize that you are not uh, the God who is, is tame. You are not the God who is safe. You are not the God who we can contain in our own minds. But yet you are the God who has spoken in the scriptures. You are the God of profound love and concern for your people. And so, Lord, we thank you for that, and we pray that as we take this, as we drink this juice and this bread, 
that you would use it to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our resolve in the beloved in Christ. And so we pray in his name. Amen.